Hello, and welcome to Historically Speaking, Uncommon History with an Unconventional Pair. I'm Rebecca Robbins. And I'm Kim Kimmel. I'm a singer and actress. And I'm a retired history teacher. He was my history teacher in college. And now we've been married for 21 years. <laughs> sometimes quirky, sometimes obscure. But this is the kind of history you actually want to remember. Hello, and welcome to episode 23 of Historically Speaking Podcast. Today, we have a pretty interesting topic. We have lists for best president, worst president, but there aren't very many lists for underrated. That's right. Underrated presidents. There are some candidates, James Monroe, James Polk, Grover Cleveland, perhaps William Howard Taft. Really the ones whose names you're like, who? Yeah, well... My choice for the most underrated president is Calvin Coolidge, the 30th president of the United States. I just like his name, Calvin Coolidge. Calvin Coolidge, yes, right. Uh, Calvin Coolidge was born on July 4th, 1872. He's the only president of the United States born on the 4th of July. I love that so much. He was born in Plymouth, Vermont, specifically Plymouth Notch, a little village in Plymouth, town of Plymouth, Vermont. His father was John Coolidge Sr., Calvin Coolidge was actually John Calvin Coolidge, but he never used his first name. He was always Calvin Coolidge. And uh, unfortunately, his mother died when he was only 12 and his sister when he was only 18. So it was just his father and he, they were farmers. And uh, his father also was in local politics. He served in the Vermont lower house, the upper house. He was a notary public, justice of the peace, and so on. He was a good man all around. He was in the Vermont militia, etc. But it was just the two of them. Yes. Uh, his father did remarry in the 1890s when Coolidge, by that time Coolidge was in college, I think, when his father remarried. And uh, his father had no children from his second wife. So Coolidge was very well educated uh, right from the beginning. He went to Amherst College. And uh, when he got out of Amherst, Amherst being in western Massachusetts, very good reputation, of course. I've heard of it. Yes. He uh, apprenticed himself to a law firm and became a lawyer. A lot of lawyers at that time didn't go to law school. They just, even then? Even then, right. And actually, I think that's the better way. I was like, when did that become trendy? You have to go to law school and then you have to take the well, bar Well, it started review. in the 19th century. And uh, I think the last state to allow you to uh, apprentice yourself like that was South Dakota. I could be wrong about that, but it's no longer. You have it to just go. makes sense to be yeah. an apprentice. Well, learn the trade. Anyways. Anyway. So he apprenticed himself. Yeah, he became a lawyer. He became a very good lawyer. And um, in Northampton, Massachusetts, uh, Western Massachusetts, uh, he began to rise in local government, uh, town council and so on, different positions, practicing law off and on. Eventually, he was elected to the lower house of the Massachusetts state legislature, came back, served as mayor of Northampton. Then he was elected to the upper house, the Senate in the Massachusetts. He's just moving right along. He's moving through the government. Pretty steady pace this, here. Yeah, pretty steady pace here through these. He's, very, he's going to come to the presidency very well prepared. Right. And, like literally knowing government from the ground up. Right. And eventually, Coolidge, uh, he would marry a wonderful woman named Grace in 1905. She was beloved by almost everyone. She graduated from the University of Vermont uh, in education. Her specialty was teaching the deaf, uh, which became first lady. She was very much admired and so on. She was as gregarious and outgoing as Calvin Coolidge was taciturn and uh, reserved. So, so the opposites attract. Absolutely. It's a good example situation. of the opposites attract, uh, attracting. I think they were devoted to each other. They had two sons, John and Calvin. Eventually, 
Coolidge was nominated to become lieutenant governor of Massachusetts. He did become lieutenant governor. And eventually, in 1918, he ran for governor of Massachusetts. So he's really going up the steps here. He sure is. The political ladder. When he became governor of Massachusetts in 1919, the Boston police strike occurred. And Calvin Coolidge, as governor, issued a statement. He said, there is no right to strike against the public safety by anyone, anywhere, anytime. This brought him to national attention. Calvin Coolidge overnight became a well-known national figure because he stood was, up. That was before the internet. I know. He went viral before Radio. you could go viral. Yeah, I mean, way before TV uh, and so, so on. So it's amazing. I guess newspapers well, just, newspapers, just picked yeah, up on right. it. And... Radio really takes off in the 20s. And yes, it brought him to national attention. Well, it just so happened that the next year, 1920, was a presidential election year. Uh, Warren Harding would get the Republican nomination. James Cox of Ohio would get the Democratic nomination. And by the way, FDR would get the vice presidential nomination for the Democratic Party, the young FDR, who wow, was only in his been, late 30s. I was going to say, he must have been really young. And this was before he got polio. So he was very vigorous, et cetera, oh, and all that. For some reason, I thought he had it as a child, but he no, had no. it as an adult. He got it in 1921, the year after this election. Oh, yes. man. That's right, so when sad. he was like 39 years old. But getting back to the 1920 election, right. there was a question as to who Warren Harding would take as his vice president. There were about a half a dozen candidates for that. Well, Calvin Coolidge was eventually chosen. Good choice. Right. And I think it had to do with the Boston police strike statement because of his national oh, reputation. because people uh, recognized his name. Yes. Massachusetts was probably an important state for yes. the mm-hmm. Absolutely. electorate. And it balanced the ticket nicely between Ohio, where Harding was from, and you know, a New Englander and all that. Well, Harding won in a landslide against Cox and FDR. And Harding would only serve about two and a half years as president because he would die in office. Warren Harding, I think he had some uh, shrewd aspects to him. I think he was a decent man, but he was surrounded by friends who were corrupt. Now, I'm just curious. Do you think Calvin Coolidge had any sense that Harding was not in good health? I don't I don't think so, no. So he kept that kind of quiet. Harding, Harding himself knew he had a heart condition. Okay. And by 1923, I think Harding and his wife Florence were of the opinion that he might not live out his, his term. But that was not public information. That was not public at all. A doctor, few doctors knew it. A few very close people knew it, and that was it. But even Calvin Coolidge probably didn't I don't th- I have know no, I didn't sure how dire the situation was. That's correct. Okay. I've never come across information that he was aware of that. Uh, Harding was the first president to invite the vice president, in this case Coolidge, to cabinet meetings. Oh, that's nice. Yes. Uh, Harding was actually, I think, a very decent uh, man in many ways. It's a shame his reputation has been so stained uh, because of his friends. When Harding died in August of 1923, all these scandals like Teapot Dome, the Veterans Bureau, and so on in his administration had not yet surfaced. (gasps) Oh, so nobody had any idea what was coming. Only a few did. Oh, dear. Yeah. I mean, his wife did. I think maybe a couple cabinet members might have. Harding did ask Herbert Hoover, who was his Secretary of Commerce, shortly before Harding died. He asked Hoover, if you knew of major scandals in your administration, if you were president, would you try to bury them or would you expose them? And Hoover gave him good advice. He said, I would expose them and at least get credit for that. 
This may have just contributed to Harding's death when it did. I mean, he already had a bad heart. Oh, the stress and of all, this all stress. these secrets and Right. So I scandal. think that that might have been a contributing factor. Harding had taken a tour of Alaska and the West, Western United States in 1923, went up to Alaska, came down through Washington, Oregon, went to San Francisco. And it's in San Francisco on August 2nd, 1923, that he has a massive heart ailment that kills him. We're not sure if it was a heart attack or not, but he died on August 2nd, 1923, while still present. In San Francisco. In San Francisco. Coolidge at the time was at Plymouth Notch, where his father lived, uh, helping him with chores, even though he was vice president of the United States, just visiting his father. Just pulling weeds. And he was awakened in the middle of the night on August 3rd, around 2.30, 2, 2.30 a.m., and told that Harding died. So at close to 3 in the morning on August 3rd, 1923, in the little village of Plymouth Notch, Harding's father, who was a notary public, who was... Harding's father? I'm sorry, uh, Coolidge's father, okay. who was notary public and a justice of the peace, administered the oath of office to his son as president of the United States. That would wake you up real fast at yeah. three in the morning. It was a very touching moment, I think. Coolidge the next day, of course, went to D.C. He was sworn in again by a district judge. They just want to make sure that it was... Let's just make sure this right, is official. Because you know, they didn't know that a, justice, a local justice of the peace that would be good enough and so on. But uh, he was sworn in. Coolidge became quite aware very quickly of all these scandals that were breaking because after Harding's death, Teapot Dome, Veterans Bureau, all this stuff started coming out by the end but of But people just started talking now that Harding was yeah. dead? Yeah, a lot of it came out. It would have come out anyway, even if Harding hadn't died. Eventually. It's just uh, coincidental that he died when he did. And uh, so his popularity went way down and has stayed way down ever since. He was done in by his friends, not by his enemies. Kind just of like, like uh, Caesar. Yes, just like Caesar. That's a good analogy. I was going to analogize to uh, Ulysses S. Grant's uh, presidential administration. Uh, Grant was uh, blameless, but he trusted too many people who were corrupt, and that provided a stain upon his administration. Coolidge had nothing to do with these scandals. He was above board. Nobody ever accused Coolidge of having anything Well, he to do inherited with all of this. He inherited all of this, and to his credit, he handled it very well. He presumed that everyone was innocent until proven guilty. He had Senate investigations. And as you move into 1924, he's cleaning up the administration completely and getting a good bit of credit for it. Uh, I mean, there, was, there was an awareness out there in 1924 that Coolidge had nothing to do with these scandals, and he was handling them very well. And he asked Howard Doherty, uh, Harding's uh, attorney general, to resign. Uh, Albert Fall, secretary of the interior, who had leased Teapot Dome and Elk Hills, to oil tycoons and very conveniently got hundreds of thousands of dollars in return as a loan. Here's a little kickback. Yes, that's the worst. Teapot Dome in Wyoming and uh, the oil leases in California. Halbert Fall would spend about a year in jail, I think. But Coolidge, of course, was above board with all this. So in 1924, you have another presidential election. And Coolidge is the obvious choice. I mean, he's looked upon as honest. He's looked upon as competent. And uh, by this time, everyone's calling him Silent Cal because he was a man of few words. Already? Yes. Okay. I think he really got that term Silent Cal when he was vice president. I uh, see. Because he'd have to go to all these banquets and all these dinners and engagements and so on. Which he probably hated. Well, his response to that was, got to eat somewhere. He had a very efficient administration. I mean, Herbert Hoover was his Secretary of Commerce. At first, Charles Evans Hughes was his Secretary of State. He had Andrew Mellon as Secretary of the Treasury. Wow, so he surrounded himself with very capable people. Yeah, he kept a lot of the Harding people. I mean, Mellon had been Harding Secretary of the Treasury, Charles Evans Hughes as Secretary of State, Hoover Secretary of Commerce, and uh, 
Coolidge would keep them. Well, it was pretty obvious that he was going to run for president in 1924. A very sad event occurred in the summer of 1924 when Coolidge was president, not quite a year. His younger son, Calvin, played tennis uh, in his bare feet on the tennis court at the White House, and he developed a blister. And the blister became septic, uh, and he died oh. after about a week. And Man, Coolidge himself... From playing tennis. Yeah, from playing tennis. A blister. Sepsis occurred. And uh, Coolidge said it kind of took all the power and glory out of the presidency for him. His older son, John, would uh, lead a very successful life as a, a business executive. He would live to the year 2000. Wow. Uh, into that's his 90s. That's amazing. Yeah. But he lost uh, the Grace uh, Coolidge. And how, I'm sorry. How old was he when he died? He was only, let's see, he was born in 1908. And it was Calvin who died, right? Yes. It was Calvin who died. He was only about uh, 16 years old, 15, 16. Oh, man. Yeah, he was just a boy. But Calvin Coolidge ran for re-election, not re-election, but for election in his own right in 1924. He picked up Charles Dawes as his vice presidential running mate. Uh, he easily beat John Davis from West Virginia and uh, Davis's vice presidential nominee, Bryan of Nebraska. So Coolidge now comes into office in his own right, not just filling out the term of a previous president. He's elected in his own right. Uh, Coolidge really did a number of things that I think he should get credit for. I mean, in 1924, the, year, the presidential election year, he signed an act which gave American citizenship to all Indians, all American Indians. Oh, they didn't have citizenship until then. Many American Indians who lived off reservations already had citizenship, but Coolidge signed an act which gave it to all American Indians, whether they're on reservations or not. And that's good law to this day, that 1924 act. Oh, wow. So it stuck. He signed an immigration bill. He wasn't particularly happy with it. It cut the quotas of Southern and Eastern Europeans, and it completely excluded Japanese immigrants. And Coolidge very reluctantly signed this, and below, he added a signing statement. Remember when we oh, right. signing <laughs> dealt with the signing statements on a previous podcast? And the signing statement was to the effect that he was very disappointed that Japanese were barred from emigrating to the United States. And this was in the 20s. This was in the 20s. And this brings me to a larger point about Calvin Coolidge. He was really remarkably ahead of his time with respect to being devoid of racial or ethnic or even uh, a gender prejudice. He hated the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, he really did. The Ku Klux Klan made a big comeback in the 1920s after World War I. And he detested the Klan. He spoke at Howard University, the commencement address. Howard University is the uh, black university in D.C. That in itself was amazing. You know, here you have this white president in a very white America speaking at Howard University. That was a big deal. Right. On many occasions, he spoke about the importance of black Americans being looked upon just as equal as anyone else because they're American citizens. And he, interestingly enough, and you're like this, he was for women's suffrage. I do like that. Yeah, many people were not, including some women. That's what really surprises me, that there were so many women who were against. Yes, that's true. Women uh, voting. They thought that that was, you know, not politics a was place. a man's profession and so on. But Coolidge, in fact, Coolidge was the first president to nominate and place uh, in the federal judiciary a female. Genevieve Klein was Coolidge's nominee for the United States Customs Court. It's a federal court which deals with trade matters with other countries and so on. So Coolidge appointed the first woman to the federal judiciary. That must have been a big deal. Yeah, I mean, Because it was definitely a man's world then. It definitely was. Coolidge really judged you on who you were, not on some kind of biological characteristic. 
And I think that's a really positive thing about him, one of the many of the things I like about Coolidge. Especially at the time that he was living. Right. A lot of things don't happen in Coolidge's administration. It's the Roaring Twenties. Uh, Coolidge was of the opinion that government is best, which governs least. He felt that government should exist in Washington and business should exist in New York. He didn't really want to have much to do with government interfering with business. He Wait, said, is, this, is prohibition happening right now? Yes, it is. A prohibition kicked in in 1920 and would go to 1933. Coolidge himself was personally against prohibition. He didn't think it was a good well, idea. Well, then why didn't his president sign an executive but order? But he said the Constitution takes precedence to feelings and all of that. And so... What? How is that in the Constitution? Well, the 18th Amendment. <laughs> the 18th Amendment is the Prohibition Amendment. and it, uh, That was just dumb. Yeah, it's, it's, one of, it's one of the dumbest things. It in really served yeah. no purpose, and it, whatsoever. and it gave rise to organized crime. Yeah, would the mob have existed? Uh, well, that's a good but question. For... But we know that we know why it really came into existence, and it's because of prohibition. It would have certainly changed the path of the Kennedys. Yeah. Well, the Twenty First Amendment uh, repealed the Eighteenth Amendment. It's the only time in constitutional history when you have an amendment repealing an amendment, and that kicked in in thirty three. But Coolidge, you know, felt he had to uphold the law. So I wonder if he was if he was a teetotaler or if he uh, took a little nip on the side. I know Harding drank when he was president. He loved liquor. I don't. I've never come across Coolidge, uh, you know, as a drinker. I don't know maybe he had having a beer a little, once in a while. Or having something. a little hard lemonade but, yeah, at lunch. Yeah, Coolidge was very straight laced. Was he religious, by the way? Yes, yes, he was religious. In fact, he was named after John Calvin. Oh, okay. Uh, and, uh, well, he was named after his father, His I ancestry guess. goes the whole way back to the 17th century, the Mayflower and all that. And uh, he was, uh, I would call him a devout Christian, Protestant, yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Congregationalist, yes. He felt as president that his job was to do as little as possible. That the country would run an autopilot. What's that? I think that's a great idea. Yes. I uh, wish more people would implement that right. idea. He said the greatest political privilege a person can have is to live under the American Constitution. That's a powerful statement. That is a very powerful statement. He had a lot of great sayings. Like he said, you can't know too much, but you can say too much. <laughs> hmm. Pretty good, I like huh? that, yeah. He also said that a government that takes any taxes more than necessary is engaging in government theft. Oh, he said that? Yeah. And he was a very strong believer in reducing taxes. Just to give you an example, when he first came in, people making over $100,000, and people making over $100,000 in the 1920s, that was a huge amount of money, okay? I mean, if you were making 10000 a year in the 1920s, that was really a lot. Well, those who were making over $100,000 when he first came in, federal revenue was around $700 million a year from income taxes, and they were paying... 30% of that. Coolidge lowered the top tax rate from 73% to 24%, so that by 1929, the federal government was getting more revenue, about a billion dollars a year, and those making over $100,000 were contributing not 30% of that, but 65%. In a way, he's kind of anticipating Reaganomics in the 1980s. Reagan cut taxes drastically from 70 to 28%, Federal revenue from taxes, income taxes, were around $500 billion when he came in, a trillion when he left. The richest 1% when Reagan first came in were paying 17% of that $500 billion. By 1989, the richest 1% were paying 26% of that $1 trillion. 
which points out a theory of mine which I believe is correct. And that is, if a government wants to raise uh, revenue, cut taxes. Yeah, a lot of people don't, don't buy into no, that. No, they don't buy into that. And uh, of course, I'm expressing an opinion here that our, many of our listeners might disagree with. Well, perhaps many will not. But uh, when you give people the incentive to make more money and keep more of it, you'll get actually more revenue. They're going to spend more of it. Yeah, you're going to get more revenue. Because they feel comfortable. At a lower rate, yeah. So Coolidge to, you know, monitored that situation pretty well. Almost everybody profited in the 1920s. A lot of Americans, millions, came to own a home, came to own a car. There was a lot of prosperity. I think the 1920s get disparaged too much because of what happened in the 1930s, the Great Depression. But there was a prosperity that was across the board. One group that did not experience that were the farmers. Farmers had a tough time in the 1920s. And Coolidge felt that it was up to them to solve that problem. So he vetoed the McNary-Hogan bill, which would have bought surplus uh, goods made by farmers. He didn't like that idea. He didn't like the idea of the federal government coming in and doing a lot of things like that. And so he's sometimes criticized for that. Yeah, I could right. say why. What's interesting is governor of Massachusetts, he was for child labor laws, uh, reducing the work week, uh, and so on. But as president, he didn't really address that issue. And the reason why is he thought that it was a state matter, not a federal matter, that it should be a state by state. I see. Right. And Coolidge... Uh, didn't do much in foreign affairs. He uh, Did he meet with any foreign leaders at all that we know of? Uh, yes, he did. The only trip he took when he was president outside of the United States was to Cuba to meet with a certain Latin American dignitaries and so on. And that's the only time that Coolidge left the United States while he was president. What kind of government's happening in Cuba in the 20s? In the 20s, it's a free-rolling government. It's The most powerful wins. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, this is really the beginning of... Uh, the pre-Castro years. Yeah, pre-Castro years, the Batista years. Batista isn't in power yet and so on. But uh, American businessmen are seeing many opportunities in Cuba at this time. I see. And all of this is going to just get more and more so as far as America involved in Cuba until 1959 when Castro overthrows uh, Batista, which, of course, is long after Coolidge. That's a whole nother episode. That's right. In 1928, moving up to 1928, people were wondering whether he was going to run for re-election. Well, in 1927, cryptic as always, when he was at what was called the Summer White House, uh, Custer State Park in South Dakota. He really liked South Dakota. Oh, wow. Okay. And he liked Is that to part of the Badlands? Yes, there? that's right. Okay. And he, uh, he, he liked to spend time out there. And uh, in 1927... As people were thinking about the 28 election coming up, he handed out to the reporters a very cryptic message on, on cards that said, I do not choose to run in 1928. What? He handed them out like business cards? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> By the way, yeah. here's my statement. And what did that mean? I do not choose to run in 1928. Did that mean that he was still open to being drafted uh, at the Republican convention. It was rather, even Herbert Hoover, who That's really- That's just weird. I'm sorry. That's yeah. just weird. Come out and say what you need to say and don't be so aloof. Well, I, I, I don't have that negative assessment of it as you do. I think it's, uh, I don't know what, he did later on say that if he had run for re-election, and won. That would have meant that he had, would serve 10 years as president. And he thought that was too long for anyone to serve. Not to FDR. But I have to wonder if the reason why he really didn't run was because of the death of his son and just didn't have it in him to do it anymore. 
That was probably a big part of it. Up until 1928, the stock market and prices and so on were, were fairly valued. But from 1928 onwards, okay, as you move into 1929, things were getting out of hand. We covered this on a previous podcast when we dealt with the FDR and the New Deal and all that. Right. And people were buying more and more on margin in 1928 into 1929. A lot of these trusts were being established. Coolidge, I am convinced, knew he, he had a sense of this. He had a sense of this. In fact, he had a discussion with Harlan Fisk Stone, who had been a classmate of his at Hammerst, temporarily Coolidge's attorney general. Coolidge actually, I was the one appointment to the Supreme Court that Coolidge made. And Stone was a pretty sharp guy too. And Coolidge and Stone both thought that a correction was coming in the market. A correction, uh, yes. not a huge depression. Well, that goes to why I think he might be the most underestimated president in American history. Now I'm getting to the nub of it. Oh, finally, after what, 25 minutes? Right. I'm getting really to why I think Coolidge is so underestimated. Coolidge saw that a market correction was coming, and he left office in March of 29. Hoover uh, ran on the Republican ticket in 28 and beat And I out. guess he and Hoover were friends, right? Not really. What's interesting oh, about that Hoover is Hoover, Herbert Hoover was looked upon by virtually everyone as this whiz engineer, this person with a fantastic intellect. I mean, even FDR, when he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, said that Hoover would make a great president. Surprise. Uh, Hoover had saved many people from starvation in World War One. He was looked upon by so many individuals. He sounds like a Dudley Do-Right to me. Uh, well, that's only because of his presidency. Before that, Hoover was a very famous man. But one of the few people that did not have a high opinion of Hoover was Coolidge. And why is that? Coolidge said, that man has offered me six years of unsolicited advice and all of it was wrong. He called him Wonder Boy. It wasn't meant as a compliment. Ooh, wow. <laughs> I, this is another reason why I think Coolidge has been too underestimated. He understood that the kind of social engineering that the engineer Herbert Hoover wanted to engage in was not a good thing. And so in 1929, Coolidge leaves office and goes back to live in Massachusetts, all right, in, in Northampton. Hoover becomes president, and as you know, not much more than a half year later, yep, you have the crash. And what did Hoover do? He ignored Andrew Mellon's advice to do nothing. He started to do all kinds of things like uh, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, forcing employers to keep wages artificially high and all of this. And remember when we did the uh, podcast on the New Deal, Tugwell, one of FDR's brain trust people, said basically the entire New Deal was modeled on what Herbert Hoover did. Right. You see, I think if Coolidge had run for re-election in 1928 and won, and he would have won, he would have beaten Al Smith as Hoover did, and then you had the stock market correction, Coolidge would have done absolutely nothing. And we would have come out of this correction in about a year, year and a half. It would have been a tough year. Sometime in 19, yeah, a tough year, but better than a tough decade. <laughs> Given the choice? Yes. Yes. It is the conviction of many people, Paul Johnson, Jim Powell, yours truly, that first Hoover and then FDR tinkered way too much with the economy and actually prolonged the Great Depression. Coolidge would have done nothing. And I think by 1931, we would have been coming out and the market would have bounced back and wages would have bounced back, employment would have bounced back and all of that. And this is the main reason why I choose him as the most underestimated president. It's based on a hypothetical that he would have handled 
the crash in Wall Street in October of 29 much better than Hoover did and then FDR. But don't you think had that happened and Coolidge was president and he was doing nothing, there would have been such a public outcry for him to help do something to save your average American who was in dire I don't, straits. I don't know. I mean, it, 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 don't forget the Depression kept getting worse and worse and worse as you move into 31, into 32, into 33. If I'm correct that Coolidge doing nothing would have pulled us out by 1931, you wouldn't have had the depths that the Depression inflicted upon the American people and then on the world. So I think that uh, a year's worth or so of uh, market correction, loss of jobs and so on, I think that would not have been the kind of terrible experience that a 10-year, 11-year Great Depression was. Okay. I mean, that's my, that's my thinking on it. We'll never know. We'll never know. But I just like the man, and I like his policies, and I think he was a, a very fair individual. Certainly, he was completely honest. There was no scandal in his administration, none. Hmm. He nominated good people, like Kellogg as his Secretary of State, Harlan Fiskstone for the Supreme Court, and all of that. And uh, he left in 1929. And he was ahead of his time as far as... Seeing civil rights or I think he was, women's yes. rights. Yeah, I think that's another major reason why he's underestimated. Absolutely. He, he really detested racial prejudice and said so on many occasions. Didn't he sign an anti-lynching law? Oh, thanks for mentioning that. He proposed, he wanted a federal anti-lynching law. A number of states had an anti-lynching law, although in some states it wasn't very well enforced. Right. And he proposed a federal anti-lynching law. He couldn't get it through Congress. That's, why? Wow. Who, who, <laughs> who would not vote for that? Well, I guess there were a lot of legislators that thought My it was guess a state issue. they were all Southerners. Well, don't forget when the Ku Klux Klan made a big comeback in the 1920s, it wasn't just in the South. For instance, a state like Indiana had a lot of Klansmen. Where are they just coming out of the woodwork? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, mean I, I think there was something like in the early 20s, something like, I don't know, 5 million. Oh, these evil people. Yeah. Well, Klan is just, I mean, it comes out of the Civil War, and uh, they tend to be bozos, and they tend to be. But some of them are very, very educated. <laughs> well, right. They're, they're smart enough to know better. And it's actually interesting because right now, as we speak, Nathan Bedford Forrest is being dug up yeah. and moved out of there. Yeah. First uh, Grand Imperial Wizard. Yeah, a, a great and, uh, and a civil war general, a great a great general. But and Forrest didn't have as negative a view of uh, of blacks as later Klansmen would. I mean, he certainly didn't think they were the equal of whites. But but it's it just got the worse hate. And worse. I mean, to be eaten up with that much hate, mm-hmm. I just well, the Klan wasn't only just against blacks. I mean, they were against Catholics, against Jews. So it was Coolidge detested this. He just well, ugh. it's dumb. Yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> There you go. That's my opinion. Right. It's unethical. It's, uh, I guess you could say it's stupid. But Coolidge uh, didn't live much longer after his presidency. Um, Oh, really? No. He uh, died. He wasn't that old. No, he wasn't that old. And he he went back to Northampton, Massachusetts. Uh, He was often seen in his boat on the uh, Connecticut River. And uh, in January 33, he he died of a heart ailment. He He also had a heart ailment. Yeah. He was only 60. That's it? That's it. Yeah. He never lived to see FDR become president. He lived to see FDR elected president in November of 32, but he died in January and FDR wouldn't come in until March 4th. Maybe that's what killed him. 
<laughs> I don't know about, about that, but uh, I think he must have been chagrined at all the uh, attempts Hoover made to solve the uh, the crash, when I'm certain, once again, Coolidge would have just... Just let it happen. Just let it happen. Let, let, the, let the market self-correct. That would have been Coolidge's approach. But he kind of disappears from history. He certainly does. Yeah, and I think that... Uh, and I think you have a story that you want to tell our listeners. Oh, yes, yes. Because uh, uh, mother... you've been telling me this story for years. <laughs> so my... finally you can tell someone else. My mother and I visited Vermont in uh, August of 1988. It was very hot. And we made our way to Plymouth Notch because I wanted to see Plymouth Notch where, you know... The because fam... of Calvin Coolidge? Yeah, cause, absolutely. Okay. Because of the family farm, uh, you know, the homestead. And I knew that there was a national historic site. And I just I just needed to see it. I just wanted to see it. So my mother and I made our way up to Plymouth Notch. And uh, there were two older women there who, as girls, were there the night that Wait, Coolidge... just where? There was just a few homes up there in Plymouth Notch, and it was their home. They were two sisters. Oh, so they were I just they hanging were out on the front porch or they something? They were hanging out on the front porch, and I okay. just... I mean, when my mother and I were there, it must have been, I don't know, 15 people, <laughs> 20 oh, people. Oh, wow. Okay. It's really isolated. Talk about small town. So it turns out these two, young, these two older women were girls when Coolidge was inaugurated president by his father in the early morning hours of August 3rd, 1923. And I found that out by talking to them within a minute or two. And I was like, wow, they were here, you know, when he was inaugurated. And, uh, of course, they had a very good opinion of Calvin Coolidge. They said exactly what I did, is he, he would have handled the market correction much better than Hoover did and all of that. They were convinced of that. So I said, well, where is he, where is he buried? And they said, well, you know, you got to go down here, you know, about a mile, make a right, then make a left, whatever, four or five miles away. So they gave me directions. So my mother and I went to the graveyard. It's not very big. It looked like there's maybe 500 graves there or something like that. So we walked around. We found his tombstone. And all it says on the tombstone is Calvin Coolidge, 1872 to 1933. That's it. That's nothing, it. Nothing about him being governor of Massachusetts, vice president of the United States, president of the United States. Nothing. That's it. So I, we went back to Plymouth Notch. And the, uh, the, old, the two old women said, well, did you find it? And I said, yeah, we did. I said, I have a question for you. And uh, they said, what? I said, I'm just amazed that on Calvin Coolidge's tombstone, there's nothing about him, you know, being mayor of Northampton, president of the United States, all of that. And one of them looked at me and said, Sonny, old Calvin knew if he put more in that tombstone than he did, people around here would have said he was bragging. <laughs> wow. I never forget that as long as I live. That to me was, that made the trip. <laughs> I can imagine. Yes. So when you were making that trip in 1988, I yeah. was between seventh grade and eighth grade. <laughs> Just FYI. Yeah, there you go. So that was uh, that's wow. my, my, so I, humble, my experience with Plymouth Humble Notch. beginning to end. Yes. A good, quiet, decent man. And he had many talents that people didn't know. I'll give you one example. He translated Dante's Inferno from Old Italian into English just as an intellectual exercise. So I guess he spoke fluent Italian? I don't know. I think he had a good reading knowledge of ancient Greek and Latin and studied diff different languages. I don't know that he spoke any language, but he could read languages and foreign languages. He could do a lot well, of things. Well, that's a skill in itself. Uh, he, uh, he was a remarkable human being in a very quiet kind of way. So, I love that. And to our listeners, if you look up Calvin Coolidge quotes, 
you will find that he had a lot of very shrewd comments to make. Probably because he was a man of so little words. And right. so when he actually did say something. It was always worthwhile. It was always like a truth nugget or something. Absolutely. I like the man and I like him as president. And he's the and most underrated. That's my choice. That's, okay. You know, we may, those who would disagree, but he would be my choice. Okay. And his wife, Grace, lived till 1957. So she lived so about she lived a quarter cent, many him. years. And during World War II, she was involved with a committee that tried to get the Jews out of Europe because of uh, Hitler and the Nazis and, and sure. so on. So she was a, a, a very fine human being in her own right. That's great. And then their son. Yeah, lived till 2000. Was a very successful mm -hmm. person. Yeah. I was, I've read where he made many trips to Plymouth Notch. So too bad I didn't meet him. That would have been nice, That right? would have been nice. I don't know if I would have recognized him and so on, but... Uh, Be like, hey, you look yeah, an awful lot like right. Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think that wraps it up. Unless you have anything else you want to add? No, I don't think so. I just think Calvin Coolidge is the quintessential American as much as anyone is. I like that. Yeah. So... I think we already have a plan for our next episode, don't we? Yes, it'll be something very different from this one. Very different. We're going to deal with Marxism. Dun, dun, dun. We're going to deal with Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, the origins of Marxism, a Marxist theory. So that's what yeah, our next that, podcast. That phrase keeps getting batted around a lot. Yes. And I, I'm not sure, even I don't know really. We'll go through the major principles of Marxism. Who he was, mm -hmm. what his principles are, and why it's a good idea or mm -hmm. not. Mm -hmm. We will deal with Marxism in the next podcast. Ooh, so get ready, people. Get your popcorn out. Mm -hmm. Just a, I guess a foreshadowing. I think someone that has, has high opinion of Calvin Coolidge, as I do, is not going to have a high opinion of Marxism. Just a little teaser. Hmm. I'm shocked. <laughs> shocked, I say. Okay, listeners, thank you for being here. We appreciate you listening, and we look forward to our next episode. That's right. Episode uh, will be 24, right? Episode 24. We're marching right on up to 25. There you go. Here we go. All right. So thank you so much. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Well, friends, here we are at the end of the podcast. Be sure to check out the links in the show description to find some of the resources we used for this episode. Also, if you've enjoyed listening, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a virtual high five by leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. And if you'd like to connect with us directly, you can find us at historicallyspeakingpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at historicallyspeakingpodcast. That's it for today, and again, thanks for sharing part of your day with us. And remember, if you want to know what the future holds, study the past.